Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You know, for the longest time, we've been hearing about the effects of disclosure. Well, if it were disclosed that UFOs are coming here from other planets, other dimensions, they're crypto terrestrials, whatever they are, there's something else external to us or real. How would people react? Well, I had one experience which maybe means nothing, but we know most people believe that there is life out there, and probably more than 50% of the people believe that UFOs represent some sort of life from out there. And the other day I was at this supermarket, and I was talking to a female clerk who would be maybe in her late 60s, grandmother type. And we started joking about a few things, and I got the impression from her that she's one of those hard-as-rock, hard-as-nails, pioneer, God-fearing women. You know, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, church-going person. Right. Church-going person, believes in the Holy Spirit and everything. And I said, okay. And we were just talking about different things, and I just dropped this out of the blue. I said, well, if... You heard that there were people living on other planets and they were coming here in spaceships. What would you think? She said, well, sure. Why not? I believe in that. No big deal. I believe in that. And I think most people could accept the possibility that there are beings from elsewhere that they might be coming here. Now, obviously, if there was some kind of major interaction, maybe it would be more disruptive. But I think the real problem is with the governments, with organized religion, with industries. That's where problems would occur. Yeah, at the organizational level. At the individual level, certainly, Gene, most people have to simply give up to the idea that there is other life out in the universe. I think that's brutally clear. If you look up at the sky at night, how can you think anything else? I mean, to me, that would be the ultimate expression of human vanity. Now, whether or not that life is coming here, that that is a reasonable thing to assume might have happened, maybe happening. I think that Anybody who understands the distances involved other other star systems and, by definition, other planetary systems appreciates what a real undertaking that is, given our current understanding of technology. But getting back to the whole idea of disclosure, based on what I saw at the X conference, based on the discussions we have on the Paracast gene, I don't see any reason to believe that there will be any disclosure on the part of the government anytime soon, if ever. I just don't see any reason for it happening. And further, uh, when we talk about the effects on society, I think it is really important to differentiate between how people would react based on whether or not creatures were coming, A, from another planet, B, from another dimensional source. I think that makes people very uncomfortable, just inherently. And then C, potentially coming you know, from the inside of our planet, I think that would make people incredibly uncomfortable. So I think we have to differentiate between the potential reaction based on sourcing. But aside from that, Gene, unfortunately, I think it's probably true to state that for most people, it wouldn't be something that would change their lives unless it had a direct impact on their day-to-day life. You know, I'm thinking here not so much of the governments of the Earth voluntarily admitting that there are creatures from some other place. Mm -hmm. Now, they might be forced kicking and screaming in the sense of landings, maybe not one landing, but enough that we would all see it happening, and they would have to come out with an answer, and it couldn't be swamp gas, it couldn't be a Project Mogul balloon. They'd be forced to say something more close to the truth. 
But this is fantasy. What makes you think that's going to happen? I don't see any indication that that's going to be the case, Gene. You look back at the Phoenix Lights episode, and forget the light stuff that was reported that we know as flares. Talking about the big, huge, monstrously large boomerang-shaped craft, a lot of people saw that thing. Does it matter? Did anything really happen out of that? It affected people's individual lives. Yes. But did it affect the public as, as a mass? No, it didn't. And I think this is a really important thing to realize about what we have experienced in terms of UFO sightings, even the sightings that happened to a large group of people. Well, I think about what happened to me in Caracas, Venezuela in 74. Again, whether people want to believe it or not, that's irrelevant. I was there. Hundreds of people around us were watching it. I'm guessing thousands of people in the city saw it. What ultimate effect did that have? I mean, it was in the front page of the newspapers the next day, Gene. So what? Ultimately, it didn't change anything to the extent where that event is not even in the UFO databases. It's not in the record books. So when we talk about a mass event, you're talking about, what, maybe a dozen ships landing in a dozen major cities? But there's a difference. In the 70s, we didn't have this instantaneous communication that we have now with 24-hour cable news channels aching to fill those time slots with something. Even if it's stories about some foolish entertainer who doesn't know how to drive a car or take care of their kids. Who cares about that? But that's what fills the news the cable news network. So now, if something happens somewhere, they'd have their trucks out there, they'd have their satellite pickups, they would be on the scene with the information. It wouldn't be so easy to keep it a secret as it could be in the 70s. Well, not unless the government told them not to be. Look, the reason they have on the useless entertainer stories is to keep us as a public distracted away from what is actual news because of the fact that the media is by and large owned by large corporations that are the lobbyists controlling the scenes behind the scene. So when we talk about the media showing up there with camera crews and trucks, well, yeah, if their corporate overlords told them to. If their corporate overlords don't tell them to, they're not going to be there, Gene. It'll be individual people with their video cameras, with their cell phones. They'll be taking snapshots. And, and then what? They'll put them on the website where the people who are into this stuff will see them, and the mass media will ignore it because the mass media takes its marching orders from their corporate overlords. This is the stuff that Dolan laid out so clearly at his session at the X conference. And I think, you know, people were sort of, uh, I think a lot of people were paying attention, the smarter people in the audience. I think a lot of the doe-eyed believers were sort of glazing over at this because this didn't involve the Space Brothers trying to help us. And if I hear one more person talk about how, oh, they're here to help us save ourselves, my God, people need to wake up and take responsibility for their own actions. Something also, the thing that bothers me about the Space Brothers taking mm -hmm. interest in us and wanting to help us, if they could want to help us, would they contact some one-armed farmer in Sweden or Switzerland or somewhere? Don't even bring him up for crying out it loud. It doesn't what do you matter. Think? It doesn't matter. Would they contact some unknown person somewhere, some ordinary guy, some ordinary gal, or would they use their vast abilities to take action on a massive global scale? Hey, today we're going to talk about something totally different Good. than UFOs, disclosure, and all that stuff, because we're going to go back through time and take a look at the Great Pyramid and the mysteries of the Great Pyramid. And joining us is our old friend, 
Dennis Balthaser, the truth secret Roswell. And coming up next, he'll give us some truths and information about the Great Pyramid on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Dennis Balthaser, why are people still so interested in the Great Pyramid? What about it attracts scientific attention, the attention of the world after so many centuries and centuries? Well, I think, I know in my case, I've, I've been interested in the pyramids for many, many years because of the fascination of, of the pyramids themselves, the, the technology involved to build them where they were built, how they were built, and the fact that they're the last of the seven great wonders of the world still standing after all this time. And I guess my civil engineering background probably has a lot to do with that because, you know, most of the stuff I've done for 33 years before I retired was pretty much based on on theories that were proven and, and ways to do construction. And there's so much involved with these three pyramids in Giza that, just doesn't fall into line with anything today because we still cannot build anything as accurate as the pyramids of Egypt. Well, looking at that now, what is there about the pyramids that seems so incredible based on our current engineering knowledge? Someone in your business looking at this, how would you imagine they could have built this back centuries and centuries ago? Well, I firmly believe they had help. 
I don't know from where, but I believe he had help. And what bothers me is the technology that they had to build them appears to have been lost for probably all of time. Where they're located, that much weight over a period of time, whether it be 2,000 or 50,000 years, the weight of those pyramids should have started to sink. And they had to know something about substructure and base materials in order for them things to be standing where they're at. The cutting of the stones themselves within 50th of an inch 2,000, 5,000, 6,000 years ago, what type of equipment was used for that? My last big job with the Texas Highway Department was a bridge over the Houston Ship Channel, 1,200-foot table stay bridge, and when we got to the center of the bridge and put the last piece in, we were off by about 18 inches, so we cut that piece, put it in, and completed the bridge. The pyramids are off by half inch on each side, so you're talking technology, you're talking workmanship and accuracy, that's just not unheard of. The Egyptologists talk about taking 20, 30,000 people to build the pyramid in 20, 30 years. And if you do the math on that with the number of blocks of stone that the, the pyramid has, they would have had a set of stone about every 90 seconds. And they couldn't have cut them that quick. They couldn't have shipped them down the Nile or up the Nile, transported them across to the location and set 400 feet in the air every 90 seconds. The problem I see is that tourism is big business. And it's going to be hard to convince the world that the Egyptian pyramids of Giza were not built by the Egyptians. But those guys that I work with on, on the advisory board really think that they were built prior to the Egyptian civilizations, which I'll mention in a minute. Uh, Dennis, have you done research into comparing the methodologies used in the construction of the Giza pyramids with some of the periods that that we see in Central and North America. Yeah, and if you look at, there's probably 85 or 90 pyramids in Egypt and in Mexico and in the Far East. None of them compare to the technology of, of those three in Giza. And those are the only three I really concern myself with, is the three of Giza. The others are all poor replicas. And... There's been a lot of theories that they built ramps and uh, and, and rolled the stones up on, on logs and things like that. There's stories that they put sand in the middle and build it up as they were going. I'm of the opinion that there may have been levitation involved either with sound or maybe even water was used in some way to set these stones to a height of 400-some feet. There's over 2.5 million blocks of stone, and some of these things weigh between 2 and 70 tons each. So it's, it was a massive undertaking by someone to build these things. What do we know about the age of the pyramids with respect to the Sphinx structure? Yeah, there's been a lot of controversy about whether or not the Sphinx predated the pyramids yeah. by possibly thousands of years. Fill us in a little bit on that, please. I think the Sphinx and the three pyramids of Giza are connected uh, age-wise because we know for a fact that the Sphinx is much older than the Egyptian civilization because in the first place it was covered with sand up to its neck until the 1800s and then the body was discovered and then uncovered and there it was. But there's a lot of deterioration on the back of the Sphinx, on the body. That was not caused by wind and sand. That was caused by water. And there hasn't been that amount of water in that part of the world for at least 15,000 years, which predates the Egyptian civilization. A lot of people wonder what a ufologist, a guy like myself, is even doing on, on the advisory board of the Great Pyramids of Giza. 
Dr. John DeSalvo is the director of the association, and he organized some of the most prominent researchers in the world within the last 10 years or so to research the history of the pyramids and to study the effects that pyramids supposedly possess. I think currently there's about 30 board members, and they're from Canada, Ukraine, Italy, India, France, Malta, and the United States, comprised mostly of scientists, physicists, Egyptologists, and engineers, and then me as a ufologist. And uh, I think the association has some like 5,000 members or something like that. And uh, Stephen Mueller is one of our researchers, and he's researched a civilization known as Kemetians, K-H-E-M-I-T-I-A-N, which were well over 10,000 years old. And he had a book out called The Land of Osiris, where he talks about this Kemetian civilization. And he and others believe that this was some advanced prehistoric civilization where Egypt is today in North Africa. Now, the question is, could the Kemetians have built the pyramids? And Mueller thinks that that answer could be yes, as his research supports that of others that say that the pyramids were never intended for a tomb for a king, but as a machine to transform, generate, and transmit energy. This uh, theory on the Kemetian civilization goes as far as stating that they may have had contact with star people because it appears they had technology and tools that were superior to anything the Egyptians or any other civilization has possessed. And like I said before, the use of water and maybe even sound may someday prove to have been a factor in building these things in order to handle these gigantic rocks that are used to build them. Has there any, been any attempt to use scientific methods, uh, Dennis, to uh, date, carbon date, the rock or, or the, the material that makes up the Sphinx, for example? I have heard of some carbon dating, but it didn't it didn't pan out for some reason. This Commission civilization was a black civilization that lived in North Africa, predominantly controlled by the females. And, you know, this contact with star people, I guess, is how I got involved because they wanted me to be involved in it because I'm not saying that ETs built the pyramids by any means, but I am saying that if this is true about them having contact with star people, the technology could have come from there. This age thing, there's a guy named Kevin Klein, who is an ex-NFL football player and has done research on the, the pyramids. He has a DVD out called The Pillar of Enoch. In there, he talks that he found evidence on the Great Pyramid of saltwater deposits on the inside and outside side of the Great Pyramid at a pretty good distance up the side of it. That would indicate tremendous amount of water had covered that land at some point. His theory is that it may even go back to the, the flood mentioned in the Bible, that if that's a true story, then this would make sense that there would be salt water deposits on the pyramid. So age-wise, we're not buying what the Egyptologists say, that they're 2,000, 4,000 years old and were built for King for uh, Khufu. We know for a fact that he was not buried in there because there was nothing found when the Arabs went in in 890 A.D. And any any king that was buried had all kinds of things in the in the tomb for the afterlife hieroglyphics, paintings, personal possessions, and things like that. And the only thing they found was an empty coffer, an empty box that was lidless in the king's chamber. So there's no proof at all that Khufu was ever buried in this thing. And it's our thinking that the pyramids were built as a machine of some kind. Now, when you say a machine, you're talking about sort of the long notion of a pyramid shape being some kind of a focusing device for energy, right? There's been all kinds of tests run on, on pyramid shapes. You've heard the story about razor blades staying sharp for infinity and inside a pyramid and things like that. And most people that have been inside the Great Pyramid have some 
I don't know, we'll call it mental apprehension when they come out because there's something happens in the pyramid that's an energy source of some kind. One of the researchers, Joe Parr, <clears throat> excuse me, he spent uh, a couple of nights on top of the pyramids, uh, I believe in 1997 and 1988, conducting electrical, magnetic, and uh, radioactive measurements. And he's been able to measure an energy field or bubble that forms around the pyramid. This energy field appears to vary with the 11-year sunspot cycle. And as a point of interest, it, you know, it appears that the Great Pyramid was never finished because the top is flat, 30 by 30 feet. And that's where he was on these two occasions doing his research. And he's pretty well convinced that there's a, an energy field connected to the 11-year sunspot cycle that has something to do with the pyramid. Well, but he has he presented hard evidence. I mean, if you're if you're doing energy readings and you're doing it with a level of repeatability, that's real hard data. Has he presented that? Yeah, he, he has documentation to this. I don't personally have it, but I know that he does have it because through the, the advisory board we talked about it, and, and some of that information is on the the website of the Pyramid Association, www.gizapyramid.com. A lot of Joe's uh, research is, is shown on there. If people would like to go there and look and read it. We'll have that link, by the way, at the PowerCast site so people can get there with a single click. You know, uh, Napoleon went in the, in the pyramid, in the big pyramid, in 1798. Uh, he was in, in Egypt uh, with engineers, surveyors, astronomers, artists, and archaeologists. And that work was published in several volumes in 1809 to 1822 by order of Napoleon. And he was supposedly visibly shaken after spending time alone in the king's chamber and refused to ever talk about it. And some say he was given some vision of his destiny while he was alone in the king's chamber. But, uh, you know, several people that have gone in there have come back out totally changed for some reason. Now, I assume, Dennis, in doing research about the, uh, the pyramids of Giza that you've looked at any sort of corroborating anecdotal or folklore uh, mm -hmm. Surrounding these things with the local peoples, what have you turned up along those lines? What? Well, Stephen Mueller has found a guy in an Egyptian in uh, Cairo who goes back ancestry-wise to this Canaanite civilization. Of course, nothing's written; it's it's all handed down generation to generation. He's he's becoming elderly now and has started to turn this information over to his daughter, who's working with this guy on the on our board. And he has come up with some just fantastic research and some information about the ancient civilizations in North Africa. Documented? No. But uh, based on uh, um, generations of passing the information, similar to what the Native Americans do. So an oral tradition, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, isn't this part of the entire so-called ancient astronauts mystery that we see things all around the planet that appear to be, as they say, different from what we expected of a civilization around that particular time frame? They seem to represent some vision of an advanced civilization. You're talking about Dunnigan stuff, right? Yes, because it kind yeah. of smacks of that when you look at the Great Pyramid. Yeah, and again, you go back to the seven wonders of the world, but you know the seven ancient wonders, and this is the only one that's still standing in pretty good shape. 
The pyramids were originally covered with uh, polished limestone, and uh, that's all been taken off over the years, probably since the 1700s, by the Arabs and Egyptians who used to build mosques and things like that. But supposedly, that polished limestone would give a reflection from the sun that would be visible from the moon. Was there a purpose for that? I don't know. But it's interesting to note that what you see today is not the original pyramids as they were built because they were covered with these polished limestones prior to this. One of them still has a few of those attached to it. Nearly all of them are gone from the three pyramids. Okay, so basically we may have lost a lot of the information about how these were built because of the fact that we've maybe desecrated them. That's an interesting point because there is no information available either in the pyramid or anywhere in Egypt that we've discovered so far that indicates how they were built other than the, the stories we get from the Egyptologists who keep pushing this 4,000 years old built by Egyptians over a 20, 30 year period. And the math just doesn't work for that. I mean, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to know that you're using two and a half million blocks of stone, 400 some feet high. It couldn't be done. With the equipment we have today, Nova public broadcasting system several years ago tried to duplicate this, wound up using forklifts and uh, cranes and everything else and couldn't do it. One of our researchers, Vladimir Krasinolovitz, I love it when I can say that, a Ukrainian-born member. Don't say it five times fast, by the way. No, no, no. I got it out. That's it. (laughs) But uh, utilizing some uh, pyramids recently built by the Russian National Academy of Sciences in the Ukraine, they've discovered that immune systems of organisms increase upon exposure in the pyramid. Agricultural seeds placed in the pyramid for one to five days showed a 30% increase in yield. Violent weather seemed to decrease in the area of the pyramid. You don't hear of any bad weather around the pyramid. Potency of pharmaceuticals increased with decreasing side effects, and the pyramids decreased the strength of various viruses and bacteria. He even went as far as to say that water would not freeze at 40 below zero, and I'm questioning that one, but that's one of the, the theories that he says. And that synthesized diamonds turned out harder and purer. These were tests that were done in the Ukraine with, with pyramids that they had built. So there must be something to the structure and the shape of a pyramid, going back to the razor blades and, and things like that, that over time have proven to have some energy force of some kind. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And we have researcher Dennis Malfazer, not here to talk about the mysteries of Roswell, but the mysteries of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And what about 
pyramid power. You know, we hear a lot of talk about pyramid power, that people create tiny pyramids and they sit within those pyramids supposedly to get some kind of infusion of better health. Now, is that nonsense or is there something about the pyramid that's really so mystical? You know, basically, we don't know anything about the pyramids. And what we're finding is that many of the structures, many of the buildings in Egypt are sitting above other structures or other buildings that in time have been covered with sand and the more digging that is done the more things are being uncovered you know I don't know it's kind of like Roswell I think in my lifetime I may not know any of these answers but it's fascinating research and it's just something that I've been interested in all my life really and was fortunate enough to be included on the advisory board to try to do some of this. You know Dennis something I've said on the show before is that as I do more research into history and looking at the history of technology uh, it's become clear to me personally that I think there's a very high likelihood that the true history of this planet, and, and specifically the history of human technology on this planet, is for the most part not available to us. I really believe, I don't know, but I believe that what's really happened here, the real history of civilizations on this planet, is something that's for the most part lost. I mean, as we start to look into things like the fossil record, what we discover is that some vast majority of the fossils that have been found represent marine life. It turns out that there are not a ton of fossils of land-based life that exists because of the issues of decomposition and being a subject to the elements. When you bring up the, and I want to tie it into what I'm about to ask you about, you, you bring up this idea that the pyramids were covered in limestone. Now, limestone is an interesting material. Uh, it's an interesting material that, that is based largely on the remains of microorganisms in, right. in, in the ocean. And what's really weird about limestone is that as we do research into things like ghost activity, structures that are made of limestone seem to have a, a well, not, I won't say a tremendously larger number than, but seem to have a much higher incidence of things like ghostly uh, sightings and sightings of apparitions compared to structures that are made of things like wood or concrete. Mm -hmm. In your research, what is it about limestone that was somehow useful or important in the construction of, and I imagine it was the outside surfaces of the pyramids, right? Yeah. The availability of it, I think, in Egypt, because the the quarries were located several miles away from the site of the pyramids, and, and the quarries still contained some gigantic stones that were never completely cut and used. Those had to be loaded aboard some form of uh, water craft and then up the Nile River about nine, uh, a mile or so and then across where the pyramids are located. And the, the Nile River back years ago was about nine miles west of where it is today. Its, its course has changed over time, as many rivers do. So there was a tremendous amount of travel involved in getting these stones there, but I think the availability of the limestone itself at this quarry was the reason that they used it. Now, the, the Sphinx, to me, is kind of mysterious in that how that was built and, and being covered with sand until the late 1800s. You're talking about a, a tremendous amount of fill material that's come in there, sand over the years with wind and, and uh, erosion and things like that. The limestone itself, I think, is just strictly an availability product, which mm -hmm. happens to be a good product for what it was used for. I was not aware of what you just said about the, the limestone compared with the wood products and things like that. Yeah, for some reason, structures of limestone seem to have just significantly more um, uh, occurrences 
of things like spirit activity or, or well, it apps. makes it makes sense. Uh, what you're saying makes sense to me. But you know, from an engineering standpoint, the the numbers on the pyramids just absolutely to me are mind blocking. When you're talking two and a half million blocks between two and seventy tons each, that's enough masonry to build thirty Empire State buildings. That's a lot of rock. The base of the pyramid covers, I believe, 13 acres and has a volume of something like 90 million cubic feet, 454 feet high, equivalent to a 48-story building, 203 steps up to the summit, and each side slopes upward an angle of exactly 51 degrees, 51 minutes. Each side has an area of five and a half acres. The accuracy is just mind-boggling. With, like I said before, 50s of an inch separation between some of the blocks. So I don't think the pyramids were an accident. I think whoever built them knew what they were doing and, and may have had help from somebody. You were talking about the technology. It seems to me that technology has hills and valleys and spikes every so many hundreds or thousands of years. Look at our technology today and what has been achieved in the last, what, 25, 30 years? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, bang, we've got this technology that's just eating us up quicker than we can handle it. Okay, but looking back at the pyramids, do we see other evidences of advanced technology in the era from which it stems? I mean, is it just the pyramids as something that stands out of place from the rest of the surroundings? I think the pyramids, time-wise, stand by themselves. But then you have Easter Island. You have the the lions in the in Peru the, the, on the desert down there. There's several things that have happened over eons. I think at different periods of time, and I'm wondering if was that technology spiked at that time and then dropped off, and why did it drop off? Why was it lost? If this technology was there to build the pyramids, like the Egyptologists say, just five thousand years ago, why hasn't that continued on? rather than being completely lost. We can't find any evidence of how the pyramids were built. Possibly, and I'm saying possibly, in the paw of of the Sphinx. One of the paws of the Sphinx has a chamber. We know by ground-penetrating radar that there is a chamber in one of the, the paws. And currently, Egypt will not let anybody go in there. Again, I think it's a tourism thing, that tourism is big business, and it's going to be a hard sell to tell the world that the pyramids of Giza are not Egyptian. Well, but Dennis, I mean, as far as the tourism point of view, people are going to go see the pyramids, no matter who built them, if it somehow was revealed that there was some extra human involvement, I think that would push the tourism up by an order of magnitude. So I I don't know that... I don't think they look at it that way. This Hawass that you see on television all the time, the archaeologist, I'm convinced he's on the payroll of of the tourist industry. And luckily for us, we hear that he's going to retire because he's been a big stumbling block for us on uh, on trying to do good research. Well, the other thing about technology, and if we look at this idea that there was technology available then that's been lost, probably fair to say that in the history of technology, very often we see that it's small groups of people who come up with and control the ideas. You, you look at history and you see that if things had gone just a little bit differently for Nikolai Tesla, that there's a good chance that yeah. nobody would have ever heard of him. Yeah. Uh, is it inconceivable to think that maybe there were one or two people who had figured out 
a technology and simply were not willing to pass it along or maybe kept it in a very small circle of people so that, let's say, after two or three generations, that access to that technology, the techniques, were essentially just lost? <laughs> I'm laughing to myself because you don't know how close you're getting to talking about ufology. <laughs> actually, I think I do, actually. <laughs> Researchers will not share with each other, and that kills us, you know. Uh, yeah. And it's not necessarily technology, but information. Exactly. And I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Totally. I, I just think that if we start to, to dig into this, you know, we come up with things that... I, I brought up the, the pyramids in northern and central America because those are, you know, some of those structures are, are pretty amazing. You know, the Mayans were involved in some pretty amazing stuff that also has been just completely yep. lost. I mean, yep. the... You know, the, the structure at Chichen Itza is not, I'm not going to compare it to the pyramids of Giza, but you know, given the, the time it was built, it's a pretty amazing thing. Um, they are, and that technology is lo was lost yeah, again. Yeah. And there we go again with this, this up and down cycle that I can't explain, but I totally agree that that, is, that has taken place. So I think that when we look at things like that, or the infamous Baghdad battery, you know, or that, uh, and, and the name of it's evading me right now, but that uh, piece that had been found by the fishermen back in the early 1900s that was then recently, they finally figured out it was part of this incredible, um, essentially astronomical computer, essentially. Mm -hmm. When you see stuff like this, and you think about, the, again, what we know about the history of technology, it just seems like there's a good possibility that maybe there was a technology that existed that was well within human reach, that it was not in some way extra-human or superhuman, that simply has been lost to the sands of time. When you start to look at it from that point of view and with an open mind, you know, it, you start to come to the conclusion that, yeah, this is certainly, is it probable? Well, well, who knows? Is it possible? Well, yeah, there's a strong possibility that this is the case. And, you know, especially when you consider that we're talking about times in history when, uh, you know, we didn't have ma a mass media. We didn't really have a printed word even. So, you know, the keeping of records is a very, very different thing. You know, in the, in the time of the Egyptians, ultimately, what was recorded in hieroglyphics? Well, you know, was it was it the stuff that documented the reality, or the people who paid or supported all of the work to it's create legal for the pharaohs? Yeah. Well, exactly. So, what is that? Does that really reflect the reality of what happened? No, I contend that we we don't know what happened in that time of history. I go back to the Sphinx again, and you know, there's something happened to the Sphinx. If you look at the head of the Sphinx, it's totally out of proportion with the rest of the body. And some of us believe that the face of the Sphinx has been altered. We know that there was a beard on that face, which is in the Cairo Museum. At one time, that face had a beard. It doesn't any longer. But it's totally out of proportion to the body and may at one time ha actually been the head of a lion or even a, a female face, which would correspond with the Commission civilization because the face on the Sphinx today does resemble a black female, which would have gone back and tied in with that Commission civilization that was, con was a black civilization controlled by females. The female in the commissions dominated, they were the dominant gender. And uh, I have a problem with that face, that it was altered for some reason, and I don't know when or why, 
but it certainly doesn't seem to be proportional with the, the rest of the body. So what is generally known about the Comitians then? What do we know about their technology? Only that they were in North Africa prior to the Egyptian civilization, which would go back 10 to 15, 20,000 years. So the Egyptologists talking about the pyramids being 5,000 has to be kicked back at least and doubled or, or tripled. And there is some talk that the Sphinx itself may be as much as 40 or 50,000 years old. So what about the source of the commissions? Where did they come from? That we don't know. The only thing we know is, is that there was this commission civilization. Now, one of the reasons that they got me involved was you've heard of the writing on the I-beams of the, the Roswell incident. And many people talk about it looking like hieroglyphics. So I thought this was a good opportunity for me. Linda Corley was the last one to interview Major Marcel in 1981 before his death. And during that interview, Marcel drew five symbols on a piece of paper as he remembered them looking and signed the paper. Mrs. Corley's research indicated that those symbols did in fact resemble demotic, not demonic, but demotic hieroglyphics. And after obtaining her permission, since her work was copyrighted, I purchased her manuscript and asked one of the Pyramid Association members to analyze Marcel's drawings and compare it with hieroglyphics. And the response I got back was negative. There was no similarity at all. Mm-hmm. Now, the new book by uh, Stanton Friedman and uh, Betty Hill's ner- uh, niece about the Barney and Betty Hill's case, Betty claimed to have seen a book on the craft with some symbols in it and later drew them symbols. There right. is a very big resemblance between the symbols that Major Marcel drew and those that Betty remembered and drew. I wrote an editorial on my website about the comparison and show them, and there is definitely, in my opinion, a resemblance in those two different symbols. So that's something I'm looking at, and hopefully I can get someone that uh, understands writing and linguistics and language and stuff like that to look at this and see if there is any similarity actually there. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're a little with This is the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Dennis Balthaser, who we know is, of course, a chief investigator of the Roswell UFO crash. And we're talking about the Great Pyramid of Giza. Now, what about the literature or the documents or parchments that may have been written around that time? Do they say anything that gives anyone a clue? as to what might have been known about the pyramid? No, one of the the things that intrigues me is that I cannot find anything in the Bible referencing the pyramids. And we're talking Moses 
during the Pharaoh's reign, one of the Pharaoh's reigns, I would have thought something of this magnitude would at least be mentioned in the history of the Bible somewhere. And at this point, I've not found anything. There are no records on the pyramids to our knowledge, which is part of the frustration and and part of the, the problem we run into in trying to determine or when they were built. Now, that is really, really weird. And that almost raises other questions, and that would be, was it really built that long ago? Was it really that old? Right, right. It kind of reverses your impression of what you think it is. Yeah. And then you go with Kevin Klein and his theory that the water was way up the side of the pyramid, which would go back to the flood in the Bible, because that was the only recorded, supposedly recorded, incident involving uh, water of that magnitude. Weird, weird, weird. See, that's what's good about this research. One question just opens up ten more questions, you know, and you just keep going. <laughs> the most interesting thing here is that there are possibilities. We're looking at the pyramid as something older. What if it is something newer that postdates the Egyptian civilization? And maybe that's why we don't have the documentation to show anyone remembering about its construction. Well, I don't think we could say it post-states Egyptian civilization because it still exists. Yeah, and it's part of their culture. I mean, right. yeah. Yeah. it's documented in, in historical, whatever historical documents we have. But I, I keep coming back to similarity between the Great Pyramids of Giza and other pyramids, Dennis. I mean, you know, what's the likelihood that... Different parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, it, you know... Time frame, ha- help me on, on this thing in Mexico on the time frame. I believe travel would have been possible and, and they could have got knowledge from the Egyptian pyramids to build the ones in Mexico. Yeah, I mean, those came many thousands of years later. Yeah. The, so, yeah, that came... But there again, we have that dip in, in technology, you know, four or 5,000 year spread. It's hmm. like we knew what to do, and we forgot about it, and we forgot to document it, which is even more frightening. So yeah, it's, it's not a- documented, so we don't know what we lost. We don't know how we lost it. We don't know how to get it back, because evidently what they did with those pyramids exceeds what we could do now with our existing engineering knowledge. But we're back to the issue of what you actually document. If there were a small group of people who held the secrets of the technology used to build the pyramids, would it have been a standard form or practice to even document that? I, I suspect not. I guess the thinking is so different today. We take the documentation for granted today. But even then, we can't even figure out what happened last week without having 50 talking heads yeah. debate it. Yeah. So how are we going to... This is the thing that bothers me about every element of our history. Uh-huh. We're still debating significant events. They're debating the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. They're probably debating the Korean War. World War II, you'll find different interpretations. Go back to the Revolutionary War, and you will, although there is a sanitized historical version that we accept in our schools, there are going to be differences. Now we go back a 1,000 years, 2,000, 3,000 years. Where are we ever going to have a single clue what really happened? I suppose that was, that's what makes us continue to do the research, because we don't know. And it but, could be very, very different than what we expect. I mean, if we oh, yeah. were to get the mythical time machine and go back there, we might well, be this shocked. Theory, it's this theory that's proposed by the commissions that they have contact with star people, and that's not provable at this point. But if that is true, that opens up a whole new can of worms on, on you know, technology, where it comes from and how it's used. But as you're saying, there's no 
record of that. And that's the tough part about doing this. You know, you can speculate all you want to, but until you have factual information, that's all it is. Right. The pyramids are there. We know they're there. They're physical. Unlike many UFO stories, we have something physical that we can look at and work with. (laughs) But it doesn't go much further than that. And like I said earlier, the more we dig in Egypt, the more we're finding underground that was there previously. Now there's TV shows about the underground where you go into large cities all over the world and find that there was a whole different city underneath there. And that's gone. And, you know, why was it there? Who put it there? And for what purpose? And things like that. Let's look at our own civilization here. So say, for example, something happens, some kind of global catastrophe, and our civilization disappeared in the course of five or ten years. Now look at the planet Earth a few thousand years from now because some humans survived. What would it be like? Would they build a new civilization? Would they have a record of our civilization? Would they know who we were, what we did, what we did to screw up? Probably not. Sure. Probably not. Well, go 20,000 years back where potentially the humanoids on the surface divide into two groups. One goes underground. Their physical height is atrophied. Their skin goes gray. They develop large black eyes to be able to deal with the darkness underground. They learn how to tap into geothermal energy for their primary energy source. They realize that there's a good likelihood that humans on the surface of the planet are never going to get more than a couple of miles down. So they establish an entire technology and civilization that's maybe 100 miles down into the Earth's crust. You know, the bottom line is that if you... That almost sounds like the legends of the Deros and Tiros from Richard Shaver. It really does. Yeah, that may be an existing thing today. Well, that's my point. My point is that if if you start to go into speculation, speculation can take you any number of places. Yeah. Um, You know, if we look at the pyramids and we realize that there's a good possibility that there was a technology that did exist that we've simply forgotten about because it was in the hands of one or two or three people or a small group that kept it very close to their chest. And maybe there were similar types of technology for other purposes that we've lost track of. I, I think that's entirely conceivable, and, and especially because we're talking about a period in history before the printed page, before the you know extensive types of documentation that we've created about our own society, which, by the way, What people often don't realize about the digital world is that with the proliferation of different formats for data and the the continued development of extensions of formats, at this point, a lot of the computer history of the 1960s and 70s is no longer available to us. The data formats that were used, the tape formats that were used to store data, it's getting to the point where we don't have the same tape drives and the same types of computers that could actually access and use that data. We see this problem in terms of uh, what's going on with all of the history of digital technology that's locked up Mm -hmm. on floppy disks where mm-hmm. the mechanisms to read those disks are going by the wayside. Right. Worse, uh, worse, floppy disks are notoriously fragile. Sure, but even yeah. if you can read them, you know, at this point, just trying to get the data off and do something with it, the file formats that, I mean, look, JPEG is probably going to be around for a long time. The, the standard ASCII text file is going to probably, probably be around for, for a long time, uh, but not necessarily. I mean, these things change over time. And um, so now when you extrapolate thousands of years, I I think it's amazing that we can 
know anything about those periods of history. I mean, and, and Dennis, as far as the, the Bible not having any indication of the source of the pyramids or not even mentioning them, I'm one of those people that thinks uh, the Bible is maybe less historical than a lot of people think it is. That's possible. Yeah, the frustration I have with this research is something that's self-inflicted because years ago I decided to get out of the box and not just accept what I was told. And being out of that box creates this problem for me of not being able to to verify a lot of the information that I hear. And 90% of what is available is not verified. And and this research is worthless without verification and confirmation of the material of the of the document. So it, you know it's a self-inflicted thing I've got myself into, but I enjoy it. And and I think it's important to to pursue it. Whatever the results will be, maybe I won't know them in my lifetime, probably won't. But uh, hopefully I've I've started something that can be continued with other researchers down the road if we can get younger people involved. Well, let's look at this right now. We have this mystery of the Great Pyramid, and we have a lot of theories about it. We certainly have theories about how it might have been constructed. We have the orthodox scientific theory, of course, with 30,000 people doing lots of hard labor with whips and chains or whatever, which you see in the movies, of course. We have other versions using some kind of advanced machinery that was in vogue thousands of years ago. But where do we go from here? Now, we have only a few minutes left with the show, but certainly there's a lot that remains to be known about the pyramids. So what's our next direction in trying to find some answers? Using the scientists that are available to the board, uh, use their knowledge and abilities, and I think try to find more of these people like this guy I mentioned earlier who have this information generation after generation. That needs to be documented. And we're finally starting to do that. What he's telling us, we're documenting and trying to verify. And that's how we discovered that the, the pyramids were covered with these polished limestone blocks. Uh, that was something I didn't know anything about. I thought what you see is what was there. And in fact, that's not at all what they looked like when they were built. So those type things, I think, will help us to move forward. But it's going to be a hard sell. It really is. Now, Dennis, lately we've been getting slammed by some of our listeners for bringing up the issues of personalities on our show. Um, but, but I have to bring something up. And you may not like this, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. Because I'm looking at the website for the uh, Great Pyramid of Giza Research Association. Mm-hmm. There are some very interesting names on here. There are also some questionable names. And I wonder, again, you know, this, this is the, the problem of legitimacy is an ongoing issue. It, of course, drives us all crazy. Right under your, you, you, we have you there, Dennis G. Balthaser. But right under you, we have Jeff Renzi. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's part of this association, part of this. Uh, part of he this, just uh, became part of the association. John invited him on because he has been real receptive to letting John and some of the researchers on his show to share their research. And right. he has no. He has an interest in the pyramids, but not an interest that would benefit the research, I don't believe, other than getting the information out to the public. You know, but of course, people don't necessarily know that, that people might go to this site, yeah. see that, go, oh, God. You know, I mean, Jeff, in th- fact, Jeff was the one that recommended me to John because I had done some shows with Jeff about my my UFO research, and uh, John was looking for a ufologist, and Jeff recommended me because of my my honesty and, and the research work I've done in the past. But oh. I understand what you're saying and agree. Yeah, with I mean, you know, you just uh, well, there's another name on here that I saw, and my eyebrows went up, and I went, oh wait a minute, I've read that name before. 
uh, which is Patrick Flanagan. Now, uh, this is the guy who wrote the first book about, you know, pyramid power back back yeah. in the sets, if I'm not wrong. But the problem is, and I'm not going to say that I've done a tremendous amount of research into Flanagan. I really haven't. But I do know something about him. And I know that you know this is another guy who makes some claims about his past that, that are questionable. Right. And this is, you know, as I said, legitimacy is a constant uphill battle in the field of researching the paranormal. And it concerns me because... Um, you know, we have the, the part of things that is clearly really compelling. You know, we, in the case of the pyramids, these are the most fascinating structures that probably exist from ancient history. And they're they're worthy of real deep research. They're absolutely worthy. I mean, I couldn't think of structures like that. Actually, well, I guess uh, Machu Picchu comes to mind as well. Yeah. Uh, these things that, that, are, that are true enigmas. And there should be real money going and real resources going towards research of this stuff. At the same time, if I was a guy with real money and real resources and I go to the GizaPyramid.com website and I say, hey, you know what, this is a worthy field to, to fund, and I see some of the names up here, I, I'd get concerned. I mean, yeah. and, and I have um, to believe that I'm not the only one who would say this. Well, I'm one of the newer members of the, the advisory board and, and didn't have any much say-so in, in who was on the board because yeah. it was pretty well taken care of when I joined it. But I agree with what you're saying, and, and it's just like whether it's Roswell or whether it's the pyramids, you know, your first impression of what you see when you go to that website is going to be a lasting impression. If you see names on there that you think should not be there, you're going to you're going to throw a red flag up and and question it, and I, and I think you have that right to do that. Yeah. Is that just the nature of the paranormal field, Dennis? I mean, is that? I think so because uh, we have it in ufology. You know, names are well. Right now, we're trying to put together a group for the Aztec Symposium, and the library came up with some names that were totally, totally unacceptable because they're, they're skeptics, they're debunkers, and they've been there before. And the Library Association caught hell over it because they were so far out that they're not even, you know, close to being researchers and uh, we had to go through that period i went through that a couple weeks ago with, with scott and some of the people dealing with aztec and you have that with roswell this past symposium we had uh, we had some crackpots here what i call woo-woos some of the people like that but from a serious standpoint it doesn't doesn't benefit you at all that's that was exactly my experience attending the, the x you need debunkers you need critics you need skeptics but there's a line in there too on what type they are well, sure. I mean, I have a problem with debunkers because, to me, they're as bad as the believers. They're yeah. taking a position, defending it. I think all of us need to be skeptical, and so I get I get a little, little worried when I hear the term skeptic thrown around. I think skepticism, healthy skepticism, rational skepticism, is really a very much desirable. In oh yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, keeps, the un- keeps the others, keeps the others honest. Well, exactly. But, you know, like having attended the X conference, for for every Richard Dolan, there was a Stephen Greer. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it just sometimes it gets me a little concerned, a little frustrated in thinking maybe. Uh, yeah. I think it's the nature of the beast, guys, really. Uh, maybe I don't it is. know what the solution to it is, but I agree with what you're saying. Well, it's frustrating. It certainly makes it difficult. We have to take what everybody says and run it through a filter made of fine. German chocolate, and that will that will separate out the wheat mm-hmm. from from the whatever. What is it? The chaff? Oh yeah, chaff. You know, <laughs> look at look at this, ladies and gentlemen. How David and I, with a few pithy comments, 
can solve the entire enigma of UFOs, research into the Great Pyramid, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just get that chocolate out with almonds, white chocolate no, with no, almonds. No, don't no? ruin it with that. What's wrong? Because with I have to leave you guys. Why don't y'all just do that? You you do that, and I'll check back with you, and then we'll put this one to rest. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dennis Balthaser, for joining well, us on the Powercast. <laughs> bye bye. Take care, Dennis. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and tune in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Mike Fortson, how did you first get involved with this entire scene involving the Phoenix Lights? Well, I was on my my recliner. I was in, uh, we just had dinner a couple hours earlier. I was asleep. I woke from a brief nap. I leaned over and told my wife I was going to bed. And um, I got up out of the recliner. I looked at the TV set, and we had a Sony console TV. It said 8.30. And I laid my glasses on the bar. I walked down the hallway to the master bedroom. And um, the master bedroom has a six-foot-by-six-foot six six uh, large window facing west, and it was open. And I grabbed the window. It takes two hands to close this thing. And as I pulled it, my eyes were attracted to the north. And as I looked, uh, my eyes were attracted to three white, bright lights that were in triangle formation that were angled down. That was very low to the ground. And I immediately thought I was going to see a plane crash. And I ran. I ran from the bedroom. I grabbed my glasses off the bar. I told my wife, like we've been married then about 25 years, and I told her to get outside right now. And we went out the Arcadia door. We were at the end, end of the patio, with, and we were looking to the north. And at that point in time, I saw a black boomerang-shaped object that was coming. It was heading south from the north. It had a series of red lights along the sides of it. And um, I'm estimating then it was probably 10 or 12 miles, maybe five miles from me. I, I don't know. Um, but it was one of the largest things I've ever seen in my life. As we were, we live in the Southeast Valley at that time in Chandler, and we're looking to the Northwest and Phoenix is, and the Phoenix metro area is involved in that. And there was a gray background from all the city lights. So this black object coming through the gray background, it stuck out, like I've always said, it stuck out like a sore thumb. We didn't have any problem really discerning that it was one solid object. There was no breaks. There was no lines. It wasn't just a series of lights or anything. It was a solid, what I call a chevron-shaped object heading right at us. Um, it was very low to the ground. Where we lived, um, there was always air traffic uh, going into to, uh, Sky Harbor Airport, into and out of where we live in the Southeast Valley. Planes come around to uh, to land. They come out by us, and they hook to the north. They go down about 10 miles, and they hook to the west and land. When they're out here by us, they're probably about 3,000 foot in altitude. And um, the planes that were coming into land were going over the top of this object. And one of my remarks were, at that point in time, did you see that? Why didn't that plane just get out of there? And because um, it proceeded further south to us, just about the time the nose of the craft was even uh, with us as we were looking almost to the west, stuck out my left hand and from the nose of the craft and with my right hand to the end of the uh, right wing, I said, that son of a bitch is over a mile long. It was well over 33 inches at arm's length, and I estimated it to be two miles west of us going down Alma School Road. And um, that was uh, pretty much the beginning of my voyage right there. Okay, so this is March 13th, 1997, you know, a little over 10 years ago. 
Right. Now, at what point did you learn that a lot of people saw exactly what you saw? Um, I'll probably say really beginning the next day and the next several days, there was so much confusion because there were so many sightings that were mixed in. The media had it as one event. And, and and it stayed that way. There were five videos shot at 10 o'clock at night, and I'll get back to those. But what we saw in the 8 o'clock hour from 8.16, I later found out the first sighting was in Paulden, Arizona. That was incorrect. It was 8.16 in Paulden, but it wasn't by a retired police officer. It was by a retired Army major by the name of Lyle Van. Um, it started in, in uh, Paulden, came through Chino Valley. Um, there was uh, two pilots I'll talk about later if you want to hear about them that, that were flew above this large craft. Came through Prescott, Prescott Valley, Wickenburg, Dewey, Humboldt, all the way into the North Phoenix area. What they didn't know at that time is there was three of the large V-shaped craft. All three of the craft were seen at 5.30 p.m. in Crown King, uh, which is halfway between here and Phoenix. Um, there was an, an episode where there were witnesses that, um, at the uh, roadside stop, there's a sunset point. It's uh, right where you start going down the hill from where I'm at. We're at 5,200 feet to Phoenix at 1,100 feet. There's a, that, when you start going down the mountain, it's called Sunset Point, and there were people that was pulled off to the interstate watching these three V-shaped objects together, and as two fighter jets came up from the south heading north, these three Vs pancaked on top of each other, formed a white ball of light, and vanished. You won't hear that report too much. No, I've never heard about it. Oh, okay. There were three V-shaped craft. They stacked one yes, on sir. top of yes, another sir. and turned a ball of light? Really? Yes, sir. Shapeshifters. And they changed shape. They formed a white ball of light, and they vanished. And, and, and you know, I've told this to people before on TV and you know, during interviews and things like that, and the producers will say, well, we can't tell that. And they well, why not? Why can't you? It didn't why not? happen. You know, it's too far out there. We can't say that. And, you know, we, we have witnesses that we're communicated with, and people don't even know that. You know, we have a retired airline captain by the name of Trig Johnson who was told we are not a threat, and, and yet that won't go on TV. They just will not will, will not put that one on the air. Okay, we're gonna, we're going to come back to that. I want I want to for a moment zoom back oh, to the sure. sighting. So you looked at this thing moving. About how fast would you say it was moving, Mike? I said in my initial report that I could chase it with my car and not get a speeding ticket, and the speed limit was 45 miles an hour. So it was moving pretty slow. About what height would you say it was at, if you had to guess? Under 3,000 feet. Okay. Um, what was the cloud cover I like? That originally, night? I'm sorry. I, I, I put it originally around 12 to 1,500 feet. Mm -hmm. I, I think it was closer to 3,000. Use the word float. It was as if it floated. You said there was no sound at all. None. Okay. There was no visible means of propulsion, and there was no no noise. Right. And something that large, sir. I mean, as big as it was, as heavy as it was, as low as it was, according to you know our world and our physics and everything, there should have been a lot of destruction down below, and and there wasn't. I mean, it it just floated by. Did and you feel any... outside? If you weren't looking up or you weren't looking in that direction, you would not have. You would wouldn't not have even known. Yeah. No. Did you feel any sensation on your skin? Any kind of electrostatic sensation? Were the hairs standing up in any way on like on your arms? No, sir. But every time I talk about, it, including right now, I, I get goosebumps. <laughs> I mean, I don't. At that point in time, we felt peace. We felt friendly. We didn't feel like running and hiding. We didn't feel we were being invaded. We didn't feel there was death and destruction on its way. Um, there was a benevolence there. 
I mean, it was it was warm and fuzzy. I mean, to know the truth. I mean, it was very peaceful. We didn't we didn't feel threatened by no means. I've talked to hundreds of witnesses, and and everybody will tell you the same thing. It was very friendly. It was very warm, benevolence. I mean, it was it was a warm and fuzzy feeling. It was a great sighting. But now, can you explain that a little bit, though, Mike. I mean, when you, when you say that, the reason I'm asking this is that to our way of thinking, and I think to most people ways of most people's way of thinking, if you see something like that, that's clearly not in the realm of normal experience fear would be the the first normal reaction that you're saying you never felt fear you're fa- saying you felt no, something sir. else no sir almost all the witnesses i thought the only ones that really they they were scared because the movie id4 was just out and little kids uh, tim lee's kids the very first who said that they could throw a tennis ball and hit it thought that they were a little scared but there was no adults that i've ever talked to and i'm talking in the hundreds that felt that they they felt fear. I mean, it was just not there. I I agree with you that you know all the Hollywood movies we see and the books we read and things like that that you know death and destruction and all the things that come with that. That it didn't happen. When they were, I mean it passed in front of us. There was no fear. Um, and I've been with my wife since high school. I mean you know we did. That's one thing we just did not discuss. It was it was very friendly. Well, Independence Day had come out the previous July, just as a matter of perspective. Okay, so it became you know a very big hit during that summer and that fall and i guess by the time you had your sighting it was available on dvd it was available on tv on home box office or showtime or one of those things so it had been seen quite a few times well i'm also not, yeah i'm not thinking about movie stuff gene and, and mike i mean i'm thinking about my own experiences seeing these things and you know mike the thing about it when you see something that big um i've talked about this on the show before there is this moment that there is this disconnect between your eyes and your brain. Your eyes are seeing something that your brain has no reference for. And your eyes are basically telling your brain, look at this, look what I'm seeing, and your brain's going, no way. Because the brain simply has no reference. The brain, at least in, in a sighting that I had that involved a very massive object, there was this, this it's hard to describe the sensation when someone's never had it, where the, the thing I've, I've been able to most closely sort of compare it to is the thing that happened on September 11th when people are watching TV, watching these planes in these towers, and there's this complete disbelief. It's like, I can't be seeing this. And I'm just kind of curious to know whether or not that was in any way reminiscent of when you like first looked up and saw this. I know, you know at, at one level there's kind of an excitement because you know that there's something highly unusual going on. Um, I'm just wondering if at another level there wasn't a sense of, I won't call it fear, let's call it apprehension. This again, the sense of disconnection between my eyes are seeing this thing, and your brain saying, "I have no reference point." Because, like you pointed out, Mike, you probably never saw anything this big at all. I mean, there's no there's no craft that we have that's a mile long. You, you won't even find a big the biggest cruise ship's not. It's it's a fifth of that size. You know, and a lot of early witnesses, when they were describing what they seen, they were using soccer fields, baseball fields, football fields, aircraft carriers, multiples multiple yeah. aircraft carriers in length. You're right about, the, about what your eyes and your brain see, and, and we've, nobody's ever seen anything like this. Um, but try to describe it in words. We don't even have words in our English language for anything this big. Yeah. Um, I use the word profoundly massive. 
Yeah. Um, that's about as big as I could get. Yeah. And I just, I mean, we just don't have any ways of describing this. We didn't get really excited. We stayed really calm during the sighting. And it was kind of strange because, you know, we didn't yell for a neighbor. We didn't leave. We didn't move our feet. We didn't run to get a camera. I mean, we, did, we, didn't, we didn't move. I actually remember telling myself not to blink. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to miss it. Actually, I totally relate you to that. that. Any yeah, observation you don't want to... time, you don't want to miss any. Exactly, exactly. And the notion of running to get a camera, you're kind of thinking by the time I get back, it might not be here. But let me ask you a question. Where is it at? Where is it, does it have fresh film in it? Are you going to be recording over right. your wedding ceremony? You know, and are the batteries fresh? And back in 1997, you know, we didn't have camera phones. We didn't have the, the electronics we have today. You know, you're lucky to get a Zero Lux camera. Now, there were six videos taken that night, five at 10 o'clock and one at 8.30. The one at 8.30 was taken by a fairly old camera, and it was not a Zero Lux camera, and, and it was very grainy, but I do have a copy of it. And uh, Terry Proctor took it. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was, we've been looking for ten and a half years, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'm, I can, I'm a confirmed sky watcher now, and, I mean, we, we, we spent a lot of time, money, and effort, and everything else, and we haven't seen anything even close to it. Yeah, that was like a one-time shot. Now, you said that there were, um, there was a situation where people felt that they were getting communications. Could you elaborate on that, please? Well, a very good friend of mine, and his name's Trig Johnson. He's a retired airline captain with Northwest Airlines. He uh, he lives in Cave Creek, which is north of Phoenix. Um, his sighting was about 20 after 10, way up in north end of town in North Phoenix. And uh, his and his his, uh, his report is available on Frank's website. But uh, he saw a series of lights heading at him, and he thought they were uh, helicopters or cargo planes or something. But there was no noise. Uh, he went in great detail of this as it approached him, and he was looking up. There was no noise. He said the object had an inside area of over a square mile. It made absolutely no noise whatsoever. He called it an interstellar craft, and as this passed over his head, he was told, I guess we could use the word telepathically is how he was communicated with, but he was told we are not a threat. Interesting. And that's um, one of two communications that was, that was made that night. So you found one other person who says that they had such a communication. There's two psychologist uh, professors, two psychology professors from the University of Arizona in Tucson that were with their daughters, and they were leaving Tucson heading towards Phoenix in their car. They were heading up the interstate, Interstate 10, at about 75 miles an hour. They saw a row of lights heading towards them, and as, they, as it approached their car, and they were going about 75 miles an hour, she was told, do not stop, this does not concern you, keep on driving. And hmm. that was part of her five-page report. That's the only two that I'm aware of. Well, that's very curious. We have this earlier sighting involving the very large V-shaped craft. Um, let's go back for a moment to the end of the sighting for you. So you and your wife watched this, and, and what happened? How did the sighting end? Did you just watch it fly off into the distance? No, sir. It, it stayed at the same altitude. It stayed at the same speed. It just it came from north to south. And once right. it got past... I would say directly in front of us at the west, and it was heading to the southwest. It just blended in with the black background. It was 8:30 at night, and on March 13th, that's you know it gets dark early. It, it just faded off. It, it did not just shoot off or take off. It, it, it kept the same speed, same altitude, the entire time, and then it just it just went out of sight. While you were outside watching this, you didn't hear anybody else yelling, "Hey, look at that!" Or you didn't hear any other confirmation from people on the ground that there were other people in the neighborhood seeing it. No, sir. Um, we were in a neighborhood, a brand new neighborhood called the Springs, which called cookie cutter homes and a lot of families and so forth. Yeah. And yes, sir, there was nobody else that I know of. 
We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene and Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99. Just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, PowerCast offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, Mike Fortson, who was a witness to the incredible UFO encounters back in 1997, March 13th, in Phoenix, Arizona, which is called the Phoenix Lights. So let's continue with our progression of what's going on here. Now, since this particular event occurred, you've gotten very involved in the investigation of what really happened there. How did you get caught up in that? I had so many questions. We had no idea what it was we saw, where it was from, who it was. We were pretty well convinced uh, from the first few seconds that it wasn't ours. Um, I, was, I was raised in the Air Force. I mean, I'm ex-Navy. I'm, my son's in the Navy. I've been around military all my life. Once you see something like this, you know right away it's not ours. It, it, just the way it behaved. Once I made the phone call to MUFON in Seguin, Texas, and I talked with Walter Andrus, and I, I asked him if anybody else had reported this, he gave me some phone numbers to call. Richard Motzer and Bill Hamilton uh, with MUFON here in Arizona. Um, we were all directed to meet at uh, Village Labs in Tempe on Sunday. Uh, that the, the sighting happened on Thursday night, and uh, we were we were directed to be there Sunday, and we could give our 
uh, reports at that time and tell people what we saw. I, I just never quit asking questions. I mean, from that night, uh, it, it wasn't the cameras or the interviews or things like that that really got me going. It was actually the witnesses and the magnitude of the witnesses. Um, I was amazed that the, the media made absolutely no efforts whatsoever to see how large scale this was throughout the state. They, they, you know, they were making fun of people. They were teasing them, you know, I mean, too much beer, too much pot, you know, I mean, too much, you know, you guys. They even had people call in who were debunkers, and they said, you know, this is why people shouldn't look up. It was a frustrating thing. There were lots and lots of people that saw this in the 8 o'clock hour. I would put it as high as tens of thousands in the 8 o'clock hour. Well, certainly um, Governor Steinerton didn't help because he came on there and he made fun of this thing, although he later claims he saw it himself and believed it. Yes, sir. And, and you know, I think he had to do that. I think he was forced to do that. He was he was being investigated and he had his trial going on at that time. I, I really feel he was pulled into a judge's chambers and he was talked to. And um, I, I really do. And I, I, I just think he was told to do that. He saw the new Out of the Blue with uh, James Fox. You know, he, he came across as, as a witness. Um, there are people that doubt his word, of course. They, you know, why'd you wait 10 years? You know, but you know, it could be that he had to. Um, I don't know. That's beyond me, and, and uh, I've never met the man. Well, you know, the thing about uh, Symington is that the whole the whole thing about bringing out his, his head of staff, his chief of staff dressed up as an alien, that was almost beyond just not saying anything. That was actively trying to discredit people. And I find it absolutely contemptible about the man that, that he would do such a thing um, after he then in the jam. And we've had James Fox on fantastic guest out of the blue. Excellent documentary. But when I saw that, I know my reaction was when I saw that footage of Simon saying, oh, yeah, you know, I saw it. I just want to smack him in the face because that's something that. You know, at the time, he basically, he, ended, he helped kill that story. And, and yeah, I think it's did. important, Mike, that, you, you know, you pointed out that there were really two separate stories that night. There were, there was the large uh, boomerang or, or V-shaped craft, which I didn't, I wasn't aware of the fact that, or the notion that there were multiple versions of that craft sighted. Uh, certainly, we've not heard before about three of these things and merging together. That's absolutely fascinating, and I want to know more about that. But, you know, then you have the, the event later on, with the flares that um, in, in, in looking at the progression of events that night, it seems to me like that flare event, and, I, and I'm pretty con convinced at this point that that was not a UFO, that those were indeed flares, would indicate that there was some level of military diversion or distraction. Have you found that to be That's the case? Word. You hit it right on the head. You used the word diversion. That's exactly what it was, in my opinion. And I've written about that so many times. You know, there was only a few people that got to see this at 10 o'clock, the flare drop. I mean, that's all you see when you hear about the uh, the interviews of Phoenix Lights witnesses and so forth. Since there was no videos in the 8 o'clock hour from 816 to 845 when all the action was going on, is all they have is those five videos um, that were taken at 10, right at 10 o'clock. Now, originally they called it between 945 and 11 o'clock, and then the they narrowed it down to 10 o'clock videos. Those were all shot by people who lived on mountainside homes, and I agree with Dr. McAbee that those flares had to have been ignited at 16,000 foot in order to be seen by the hilltop homes or the mountainside homes in Phoenix. Uh, just due to the mountains it's in the way and the curvature of the earth. It was a diversion. It was the perfect diversion because every time you talk to a witness of the Phoenix Lights, they show those videos in the background. And uh, you brought up Dr. Bruce McAbee, who is a friend of the show and um who I personally feel is one of the leading lights uh, in serious UFO research. So when Dr. McAbee says he's a scientist. that, yes. he's a, a true scientist, an optical physicist. Yeah, he, he's absolutely, for, for my money, 
he's one of the few unimpeachable characters in this uh, in this field. And um, when he proclaims these to pro- most likely be flares, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna put my money with Dr. Maccabee. I think that when he says that, that has to be taken very seriously, and that would indicate then that that there was some kind of a cover up or a distraction about the earlier event. Now that given that being the case, let's put that forward as a as a as a theory for a moment. Did you find that any of the people who came forward to talk about seeing the large dark craft at 8.30, were any of these people approached by government or military and told to not talk about it? No, not that I'm aware of. Now, there's there's another case here. Max Harrison and his wife, they were in the East Valley, and here's one you probably haven't heard of either, was the Triangle. There was a two-mile-wide black triangle that came in from the east. Um, Max Serson is a real estate developer. His properties was approximately two miles in length. And in his interview was, he said that it took up the entire properties in the tail end of the Black Triangle, came in low and slow, is was heading west, came in from the east. His wife said she could see various levels um, in the back of the craft, and there was lights in the background, and she could see beings moving. How do you see beings moving from that distance? I, I'm well, not clear on Just a couple hundred feet up in the air, it came through just a treetop level. And Bill Hamilton has actually a sketch that they drew that he had for his book. But there were portals, there were lights in the back, and she could see movement. And she said she saw beings moving. Hmm. You know, I didn't give her a polygraph by no means, but I believe the triangle story. There was a lot of activity from 816 to 845, and it was not just one B-shaped series of lights. That's what they want you to believe, but that is not what happened. Well, of course, they came out with the explanation it was all a bunch of flares. That is the public explanation at the time. So looking at what you're talking about with triangles and boomerangs and everything, clearly they're on another planet, (laughs) figuratively speaking, of course. So just looking at that, when people come up with that kind of explanation, what do you tell them in retrospect? Well, I thank them for telling me that story and their sighting, and I listen to what they say. When I approach witnesses like this, I don't have a notepad and an ink pen. I don't have a tape recorder. I don't have any of this. I just sit down and look at them in the eye. Um, just sit down and discuss it because I'm no, I'm no, I'm, I'm a witness myself. I'm no professional UFOlogist or whatever they call themselves nowadays. I try to avoid those titles. I'm just a friend to them. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an equal. I'm a witness. And I tell the people, you know, your story's so fascinating, you know, it makes mine quite boring, you know, and we got to see the large craft, and I mean, we saw it, you know, I mean, I measured it out with my hands at arm's length, I mean, there was just no way um, anything on this earth could be that size, and, and I, I understand. I just look at their eyes, you know, I try to go into their eyes and listen to them. I'm not a consoling person, but I, you know, I try to listen to them, and, and they feel comfortable. Um, you know, I, it's, 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 it's traumatic. I mean, a lot of people really, there's a rancher down here in Dewey Humboldt who had the thing hover over his horse barn 200 feet above. He's held this in for 10 years. And last year, the Prescott Courier newspaper had an article on my wife and I called Eyes in the Sky. And this guy read the article, and the whole idea was to bring in new witnesses and so we could talk to them and meet with them and so forth. And I had my email address in there, and this guy contacted me. And I went out there, and let me tell you something. This guy is 65, 66 years old. He's a little cowboy rancher. He's not going to tell these stories to his buds or anything. you know. And he just sat here and told me he saw this thing, and it was the biggest thing. He could not even imagine. There's not even shopping centers as big as this thing. And it was just hovering over his horse barn about two, 300 feet above it. And, and that's, that was the story, and that's what I do. I just I, I, I meet people, I talk to them. I, I'll tell you one that was written from that newspaper. They, they contacted me and was a flight instructor from Embry-Riddle. 
Embry-Riddle's an aeronautical institute out here in Prescott. They touch and go at Prescott Airport in Love Field. And there was, an air, there was a, um, a flight instructor and a student pilot. They were up in a twin Cessna Golden Eagle. They were above Chino Valley. They were flying about 3,000 feet. And as they looked down, they thought that the city lights had gone out. They thought there was a power failure. And then a few seconds later, the lights came back on, and then they realized, looking to the, the southwest, that this great, big, huge, massive, chevron-shaped black object that was the biggest thing they'd ever seen in their life was passing under them. Can you imagine? Was there any effect on their navigational systems as they were in close proximity to this thing? He never told me that, no. Hmm. I'm sure he would have mentioned that if they would have. Right. It just came by peacefully. It didn't bother them. I mean, they thought they were going to die. I mean, he told me, he looked me right in the eye and said, Mike, we were going to die. We knew we were going to die. And it didn't. It just peacefully passed under them, and it was heading south towards Phoenix. About the surface of this thing, <laughs> uh, the way you were looking at it, it was basically a matte black. You don't, didn't see any reflectivity on this. You didn't see the lights reflecting off of it at all. There were amber orbs along the side. And as I remember, one of the nose and three along the side. And as, as it was coming at me, it was almost like a black line coming at me. But once it started passing in front of us, all I could see was, was the left wing of the craft. And along the left wing were a series of amber orbs. And that's it. There was no, I couldn't really, it was, I can't say it was too far away because the nose of the craft was probably two miles west of me. But the tail end of the left wing as it was, it was probably a quarter of a mile from me. And it was just black. It was gunmetal black. I mean, I didn't see reflection. I didn't see plates. Um, I didn't see windows. No, I've never seen anything like it. It was, it was. These lights that you're describing, were they consistent in their brightness, or did they pulse or oscillate in any way? They were consistent, always. They were consistent. They didn't change there's, in brightness there's a at theory, all. There's a theory that there were people that saw white lights, and there were people that saw the amber orbs. And there's a theory that the orbs had the ability to detach. And if they detached the craft, I mean, there's the truck driver, Bill Greiner, I mean, there's a lot of people who saw the independent orbs. And yet when the orbs were independent along the side of the craft, they said the lights were white. But the orbs were, if, if that's true, the, the orbs were attached at that time as it passed in front of us on that mm -hmm. particular object. Now, right. there's one witness by the name of, of Scott Montgomery. He was videotaping fighter jets chasing these orbs. And this kid was so excited. They, they won't show you the video because the video is all over the place. I mean, it was handheld camera. He was going from the orbs to the jets to the orbs to the jets and back and forth, and he was screaming. But just listening to what he was saying was worth the value of the tape. But the so-called investigators, they didn't really take value in that. Uh, but there were fighter jets involved in this three different times that I know of. And what happened to these jets? Did they get close to the thing and then fly away from it? I mean, what supposedly happened to they get close to it, the orbs just shoot away. I mean, they just shoot away, or they just completely vanish. Now, the, the 530 in Crown King I was telling you about where the three objects pancaked on top of each other formed a white ball of light, and that white ball of light just vanished. And um, that kind of leads me to believe that it's possible that maybe this technology is not interplanetary, but it's more interdimensional. And they have the right. ability to change shape, and they have the ability to appear and disappear. That raises um, a bigger issue that we discussed on the show, by the way. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I Can. Host I Can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? 
Its reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Mike Fortson, a witness to the famous Phoenix Lights, March 13th, 1997. And we're trying to separate fact from fiction here. Mike, just for the sake of our listeners who might have a few questions, what is your business background? What kind of work do you do? I've been in sales since 1975, beginning with uh, the 3M company in 75 in Indiana. I've, I've been in uh, oil field sales in South Texas in Corpus Christi back in the early 80s. I've been in Arizona for, I think, 22 years now, and I'm in real estate sales now. I was in industrial sales for about 20 years before that. Okay, okay. So we want to make sure that people understand that you're not a professional investigator. You're a witness who's just trying to put some information together. Now, you've assembled a lot of stuff here. Do you find an overall consistency with all the information that you've gathered so far? Yes. With the witnesses I've talked to, is that what you mean? Sure. You're looking at all the various cases you've assembled, all the cases that you've talked to people, you've basically compiled. Have you put together notes about all this, or how have you assembled the information? Okay. Yes, sir, I did. Um, I had a I had a file cabinet, one complete pull-out drawer of a file cabinet full about on March 13th. I'm just my own stuff. Freedom of Information Act by G. John Greenwald um, through Luke Air Force Base, all the way through um, Tim Lee, uh, Dr. Lynn, Bill Hamilton, uh, myself, things that I accumulated, reports that Michael Tanner uh, with the Village Lab let me have copies of. Um, it was pretty much Village Labs was always a thing. I mean, I was there four or five, six times a week uh, going in and getting new reports. Once Frances Emma Barwood, she was the Phoenix City Councilwoman, when she came forward uh, with the city council meeting, says, why don't we investigate? And at that point in time, she started getting a lot of phone calls. She probably had 600 to 900 uh, reports. Um, I'd say Michael Tanner probably had well over 2,000. I got I got tidbits from all that. Uh, I had open access to everything. So you, one thing I found out is is the way it approached people and the way way people took it and everything. It was there was a benevolence and it was friendly. Nobody headed for the hills. Nobody loaded their gun and jumped under the bed or got in a car and drove away and left Arizona. I mean, there wasn't. It was it was just friendly. And that includes. Uh, I mean, there's some people out there that really have some wild uh, stories. I mean, mine's incredibly mild compared to some of these, and everybody felt the same way. You know, it was peaceful, it was tranquil, there was a benevolence there, and a warm, fuzzy feeling. You know, it was okay. We did not feel threatened. Yeah, but you know what, Mike? Here's the thing about that, and, um, and I'm just going to throw this out there for your consideration. Just because you felt that way doesn't mean that that was the case. Um, in fact, one could argue that it was important that you feel that way as a control mechanism. So, and I understand what you're saying. Just be cognizant of the fact that deception is a very common trait of these types of encounters. And so I, I appreciate that you felt that there was no danger. I appreciate you felt that there was a warm, fuzzy feeling. But I would take that with a grain of salt. When you have a device that, that's, that, that is that size, 
it's important to realize that we're talking about something that essentially makes us ants. You know, that confronted with that kind of scale and that kind of power, human beings are essentially helpless. And so it's important for, you know, if, if, if I were them, whoever they are, uh, I think my stance, and again, I'm taking this from a human point of view, but it would be, I think, important to maintain a certain level of control and keep everything very calm. Because clearly, people in the fighter jets, perhaps, did not, the, the pilots of those fighter jets maybe weren't getting the warm, fuzzy feelings. So, again, I appreciate what you're saying, but one of the things that, that I've come to not believe, but sort of think about this, is that very often, when there are warm, fuzzy feelings involved, that that is an engineered um, reaction. And so I would just submit that, you know, in your for your consideration in thinking about this, uh, maybe that was part of the mechanism used to control people's responses and to keep them from being essentially shot at in a major way. Not that anybody with a shotgun is going to do this thing damage. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't believe that for a moment. But um, I think it's interesting when you say that people felt the warm fuzzy feeling because, as I said, in many ways, that is exactly opposite to what a normal healthy reaction would be. So I, I think it's curious sure. that you said that. By the way, I've never heard that comment before from anybody that they felt like they were, you know, sort of not in danger. That's fascinating, and that to me almost confirms. Yeah, go ahead. There was no panic. I mean, and oh, here's something. You know, Phoenix is the Maricopa County's got what four and a half million people in it. And there's all kinds of interstates and highways, and you know, and there's constantly traffic. And at eight thirty, you know, you got the tail end of rush hour. A lot of cars. How many times do you see? Cars pulled off to the side of the road, people outside looking at this. I mean, you just don't, we don't stop our cars till we're home. And, and yet the cars, miles along, along the highway, cars pulled off looking at this thing. And here's another thing. You guys, I don't know if you have kids that are Little League age or not, but I coached Little League for 12 years. And here's the thing. There was a Little League game going on at 8.30, and, and nothing stops a Little League game. Not the kids, the parents, nothing. I mean, they, they run their six-inning game. It's on time. usually got an hour and 20 minutes, hour and 30 minutes. And yet as this thing passed over this Little League field, the players, the parents, the umpires, everybody stood and looked up and watched this with their jaws on the ground as this thing passed over their heads heading south. And not well, one sure. person said, hey, come on, play ball. You know, nobody said, you know, it's, well, of course it's players, not. it's the Air Force. You know? <laughs> no, 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 no. no. It, stopped, it stopped a Little League game. It stopped cars on the interstate. Well, it sure it would. That's understandable. But why don't I ask you a question which I think we're starting to focus on, because obviously we don't have the time to cover every single case, and that is looking at the overall evidence, all these individual experiences, some of whom actually saw creatures inside this craft, what misconceptions are people suffering from about Phoenix Lights? What do we need to know about them that needs to be corrected? That what was seen by the witnesses in the 8 o'clock hour and again at 1025 and also at 530 that evening were not flares. That indeed thousands and thousands of Arizona residents did indeed have truly a magnificent viewing that night of an interplanetary or an interdimensional type craft of unbelievable magnitude and size and they should be listened to instead of being mocked. There was something that happened that night that was extraordinary. It, it came right down through the heart of the state. It was actually seen throughout the state, but it came through the Phoenix proper area, right through Sky Harbor, interfered with, with aircraft that's landing and taking off, and it was not just flares. Flares don't do this, and to accept this as flares is, is ridiculous. By the um, way, ladies and gentlemen, let me just interrupt. Sky Harbor Airport's a major airport centered in Phoenix. Go ahead. Yes, I think it's like the third 
third largest, maybe, I don't know. It might be and now. It's become more of an international airport in recent years. Correct. And, and this did come in low and slow. One of them did. It came in. It interfered. Uh, pilots were talking about it. Air traffic was talking about it. It did not appear on radar. Flares don't do this. And in a state that's very fire sensitive, we just don't drop flares everywhere. And, you know, to think that what we saw that night was a flare drop, you know, God bless you, but, you know, it, it wasn't a flare drop. It, it was something uh, very, very wondrous, and it was a spectacle. It was something that the witnesses will remember for the rest of their lives. I don't know if we'll ever get to see it again, but I really hope I get to see it again. I'd like to be communicated with. I mean, I'm 54 years old. I wouldn't mind it if they just brought me up and showed me around. You know, I'm very curious as to who, what, when, where, why, and how that they were able to do this. And I still am. And that's, that's really kept the uh, ball rolling here for over ten and a half years. Well, let's just, let's just make, be clear on one thing, though. What was seen earlier in the evening at 8.30 was not a flare drop, but the stuff that we normally associate with the Phoenix Lights, the 10.30 event, that most likely was a flare drop. Right. I just want to make sure yes. we're all clear on this. I right? agree. I agree with that. And Tom King's one of the. Tom King had took the video. He shot a video with uh, Bill Hamilton. They were Steve uh, Blounder's house that night. They were the furthest south of all the witnesses. Um, at 10 o'clock, they shot video. And one of the problems we had with that, we don't really know what it is, but more than likely, it was flares. But there was nobody. There's no witnesses south of Awatuki to to the Barry Goldwater Range that has come forward with either testimony or reports or video. Otherwise, and and that's where Dr. Bacchabee come in, and um, I agree. It's uh, unless somebody does come forward with proof, then more than likely that is flares that we're watching right. on TV. Yeah. Right, and of course, uh, the part of the problem is that then those flares were grabbed a hold of by by a number of people and turned into the event of the evening, and where those flares got all of the attention. And the earlier event, which is certainly by far the more unusual event, seemed to be sort of swept into the background. We had, what's it, Gene, earlier this year? Do we have the Lynn Katai on? I have to take a look while you're talking. Yeah, it was, uh, all right, well. It was actually around March or April of this year because the 10th anniversary, Dr. Kitai came on here with another writer talking about the Phoenix Lights, yes. Right, and and to be honest, Mike, we were less than impressed by, by her interview and the problem was, and, and you know, don't take this the wrong way, but whenever we hear people talk about UFO sightings and, and start to inject the, uh, and you know, there was benevolence, and we felt they were here to help us, our alarm systems go live. Our radar goes hot. Because that often sounds like the sort of imposition or projection of people's personal desires on this. Uh, what became clear to us with our interview with uh, Dr. Kitai was that this ended up being, the interview ended up being a lot about her feelings about this, about the effect it had on her life, and a whole lot less about what was actually seen. Um, and, and then looking at her website after the fact, there was a sort of a bunch of photography that went up that she then claimed that she had been seeing things for, I guess, years before this. And this was a confirmation of uh, everything she had seen. I've looked at the photographs she, she's posted. And most of them are absolute nonsense. They are not convincing in any way. 
she brought a, a bunch of videos up to me in 1999 when I lived in Chino Valley, and it's the same videos that's in her uh, DVD, and it's the same. Actually, one of these that she told uh, someone on the 10-year anniversary, she said it was a recent one, but it was I've, I've seen that in 1999. She had um, I pulled them up, and uh, the one that's you know it's a commercial airplane. You can see the lights in the windows uh, of the plane. Uh, you can see the port and starboard light on it. Uh, once you bring it up, I downloaded this into uh, my computer, and I used Dazzle software. Um, it allows you to once you once you download the movie into or the pictures into your system, then you can go into the system, and then you can do things with it. I told her it was an airplane. And um, a lot of those, and she just absolutely didn't want to hear that. Um, it was a UFO, and you know, I didn't, I did, I agree with you. Uh, a lot of those things, I, I mean, they just didn't strike me as uh, something out of the ordinary. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, Mike Fortson, who has been investigating the Phoenix Lights for 10 years since the event occurred. And we're trying to set the record straight, get some information here to figure out where we go from here. And that's one thing I wanted to ask you, Mike. Do you intend to try to come out with a book about all this? What are you going to do with all that information you've collected? I, at this point in time, no. You know, I, I, a lot of people, Frank's been after me, and, you know, I've, I've written so many things about it. Um, number one, I keep asking myself, well, who would really read it? You know, there's there's a, people that read UFO books, and there's a lot of people that don't. I've got a title for a book. It's called That's Not What We Saw. And the reason for that is when we, the very first night we met at Village Labs, they, they played the five videos, the five 10 o'clock videos. That's all the information. They thought that was it, that the sighting happened at 10 o'clock at night, and that's, that just wasn't true. And, and we saw these videos, and I stood up. And Strange Universe was there filming, and I really embarrassed myself. But I've, I've never done this before. I stood up, and I said, that's not what we saw. You know, because, I mean, and I, I said, you know, we saw the object. I mean, we saw a one solid piece object, you know, and then there were some people there from the Arizona Republic. And he said, nah, you connected the dots and all this. And I said, we didn't have to. It came through a great background. We saw it. And my wife was standing there nodding her head, you know, and Strange Universe really got excited on this. And right after the meeting, I mean, Strange Universe was in the back of my backyard in Chandler, Arizona, filming my perspective from the Northwest, and I got really excited on this, and that's not what we saw. 
I mean, if I did come out with a book, sir, I mean, that's going to be it right there. That'll be the title. Well, yeah. and let's further qualify this. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you were at Village Labs. That would be okay. the organization that is owned by Jim Delatoso, right? Yes. Okay, yes. this is the Jim Delatoso that has gone on record saying that the Billy Meyer video and photos are legitimate, which makes Jim Delatoso a complete charlatan. So, I mean, it's just, it, it, I find it incredibly frustrating that Delatoso has positioned himself as some kind of an image processing expert when his name is most closely associated with the most ridiculous UFO hoax of all history. So, I mean, I just, and I don't know, Mike, if, if you're familiar with Dilatoso's background, but, you know, to me, this no. is what, it, it, it's just really frustrating. Dilatoso is a guy who our friend Jeff Ritzman, uh, kind of our unofficial guest host, actually, hell, he's our official guest host. Official, and, definitely. Let's give him the full title I, here, obviously. I think obviously. he is. Sure. Jeff has had interactions with Dilatoso. I know I know what I've found about Dilatoso. Um, you know, there is, uh, there's some really great stuff about him that you can find, and what, what you do discover is that this is the last guy who should be looking at and analyzing UFO footage. He is completely, absolutely irresponsible. A person like this to go on record saying that the Billy Myers stuff is legitimate, I mean, that that's kind of like saying that Peter Pan is an actual character and uh, Jim Morrison was a large black woman who ate chicken sandwiches. I mean, it's just, it's crazy stuff. And so, you know, that, that's... people that I met, I, had I ever met before, I didn't know anything yeah. about this. Now, yeah. um, they flew me to um, Los Angeles to do the Lisa Gibbons show, and I, I did that. And then one of the people that were there also was a guy named Cal Korf. And I met oh, him. Jesus. And, uh, uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> David, David, please tell us what you really think. Don't hold back. Yeah, this was before Jim Teletoso went after him with a lawsuit and why he bailed out to the Czech Republic because Jim Teletoso went after him. Cal Korf is another. Well, actually, it's sad to say Cal Korf is an absolute lunatic. He's psychotic. Uh, he didn't impress me when he was there. He, you know, I'm interested in, in what I call the massive UFO flyover of Arizona, March 13th, yeah. 1997. Yes. I call it that instead of the Phoenix Lights. That's been my guiding light the whole time. Um, yeah. These other people, you know, their histories or what they're into or everything else, you know, we all branch out. But I've met a lot of them like that, and uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not tight. I'm not buds with any of them. Um, Calf Course did not impress me. Uh, he gave me his new book, in which I promptly threw in the trash. Jim Delatoso, I speak to. It. See, they opened up the doors. Village Labs doors were open. It was open for the investigators. It was open yeah, to the public, fine. open to the right. press. You yeah. know, USA. I mean, every 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 news I'm talking of worldwide came to Village Labs to talk about this. I, I respect them for that because they did open the doors, and, and my line of communication was always open with them. I could oh, yeah. call or come in, and they would tell me the latest, um, the reports, Michael Tanner would show me the reports. Jim never really took the reports. He was more into putting the videos on his computer screen and talking about them. I never really got into that because I'm not a witness to the 10 o'clock events whatsoever. I'm strictly 830. Um, I've talked to a lot of witnesses in the 8 o'clock, 5 o'clock, late in the 10 o'clock hour. I talked to a lady who was a, a, a TV producer down in Yuma who said she saw the large object at 1120. And that was posted on uh, Frank Warren's website. We didn't even know about those people. I did a radio show here in, in Prescott Valley last year, and a guy from the Chamber of Commerce came up, and he goes, you know what, Mike? He says, I was driving back from Flagstaff, and between Flagstaff and Cordes Junction, there must have been two miles long of traffic stopped along.
along the interstate watching this thing go down. We didn't even know there was any, even a sighting near Flagstaff. So this thing was indeed statewide. And, and you know, i got to admit, I, you know, I do respect them for opening up Village Labs and doing what they did, and, you know, regardless of their past or anything. Yeah, no, no, no. I, think I, part- I appreciate what you're saying. And, you know, and again, I'll be the bad guy here. And and say that Dilatosa is an asshat. I'll take that heat, no but problem. it's true. I mean, it's true. We've caught him in some things, and he gets carried away, And but still the doors were open, and no one else in this area, not not a TV station, radio station, a newspaper, nobody offered an assembly point. or you know, We had like five town meetings at uh, They won't at do it. They Labs. won't I do mean, it. I uh, mean, the Discovery Channel was there. I mean, there was some, they did some good things. They really did. Oh, no, uh, absolutely. Sure. This stuff is radioactive. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead, Gene. I know the Phoenix media. My son has been a part-time reporter for the Arizona Republic, and I understand how this works. The local TV stations aren't going to touch with a 10-foot pole. It's something to laugh about. Oh, look at the flares in the sky. Ha, ha, ha. Let's talk about Britney Spears or whoever the show business veteran. Don't person. say that name on this show, please. Okay. Thank you. Let's it's talk Mike. about Mike, quick question for you. Um, <laughs> yes, in sir. doing follow-up, were you able to get, did you approach the uh, FAA and try to find out about what was going on in control towers that night? Because obviously, if planes were flying over this and seeing it, there had to be some communication between planes and the control tower talking about this yeah, thing. Has anybody been able to uncover any audio tapes, transcripts? Not that I'm aware of. No, sir. There were communications. Francis uh, Barwood would be one to talk to, and also Michael Tanner. There were people that were investigators. I, like I say, I'm just a witness. You know, these other people, uh, Bill Hamilton, uh, Richard Notzer, these people were trying to do this. They were trying to communicate. What one person never did, nobody got with Albuquerque. Albuquerque's got the main radar in in the southwest, and nobody got there. Um, there's a Navy GOES satellite, G-O-E-S, uh, and a number satellite that uh, supposedly takes pictures of, of this area all the time. Um, that went offline right after March 13th. Um, I was aware of that. Now, as far as the communications to these people, that was done by people above me. Okay. I guess that's the best way to say that. All right. Just, just curious about that. I was that. just a witness. They didn't want to talk to me. Yeah. Ah, frustration. Gene, this is something here where I have to tell you something, and I know David knows this, and maybe our listeners know if they've listened to the show regularly. That evening, I was probably immersed in writing a book, so I saw nothing. Okay, I've lived in Phoenix since 1993. I saw nothing. I read the newspapers, and I was kind of away from UFOs and that kind of scene. So basically, I didn't pay much attention. At that particular point in time, I said, well, all right, fine. And there we go. Another sighting. Big deal. And now we're finding it's a much, much bigger deal. And that's why I'm more and more concerned. So right now, looking at where you are and maybe you'll write a book. What about in terms of trying to continue to communicate or investigate, were there sightings after that particular day that were seemed to be related, same kind of craft, same kind of incidents, or was it all restrained, confined to the 13th of March? As far as I know, and truthfully, the answer to that is no. Nothing has appeared even close to that in magnitude. Now, there are three or four hoaxers in the North Valley who videotape anything and everything and say the return of the Phoenix Lights. Um, they post it on their website. It gets up on YouTube. It'll, it'll go on the Rinse website. Um, you know, the answer to that is no. Not of that magnitude. No witnesses. There's only one or two people that see these things that's out anymore. Um, they're basically the hoaxers that, that live in the North Valley. They're doing this. I would like to say one thing if I could. 
and Nippon TV with, from Tokyo, Japan, was here last month, and they were here for about five hours interviewing me. And they were going throughout the United States. And, and the Japanese are so open about this. I shot a video of a, of a boomerang-shaped craft in daytime hours, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon in December of the year 2000. It's from my home in Gilbert at the time. I was out sky watching, just relaxing in the backyard. I looked straight up. I thought it was a cylinder or an airplane. I got my binoculars, and it went from, uh, you know, what's that to a holy crap, you know, and I, I mean, my camera's right there, and I had it on film right away. I got about 15 seconds of this object. It is V-shaped. It is boomerang-shaped. It was incredibly high. It was very fast. I sent it to Dr. McAbee immediately. Um, he's basically the only one I trust. I didn't call Fox or anybody here in Phoenix. And Dr. McAbee said, good job, you know. I don't know what it is, but I can, can tell you what it isn't. There was no fuselage to the craft whatsoever. It was just a V. Um, as far as I know, that's the only time anything like that's been seen. And I got about 12, 15 seconds of it on video. I can forward it, a, a sampling of it to you if you'd like to see it. It's never been shown. The Japanese, when they were here last month, they, they purchased the rights for it. Uh, from me. I mean, they want to show it on Japanese television, but uh, nobody here wanted to see that. Well, Mike, I'd like to look at it. I'd like to, to give you my take on it. You don't know about my background, but um, I'm an image processing expert and former industrial light and magic visual effects artist, so I'd be very curious to see what you shot. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Um, did you get my um, simulation that I sent? No. I, I, I emailed you a simulation. No, I didn't see that at all. Not at all. I wonder oh. if I went through, um, if it got caught up in, in maybe a spam filter or something. Well, like how that. big was the file? Uh, we keep on talking while I pull it up on my computer. Okay, yeah, well, basically what happens with email, ladies and gentlemen, if you ever send us big files, you know that a lot of the ISPs out there restrict a file to less than 10 megabytes in size. And a small movie clip or an audio file can exceed that in size so it doesn't get to us. We have the ability to do more than that, but if anyone wants to send us a file and it doesn't seem to be getting through, just let us know. We'll find a place for you to upload it to us so that we can get the information. But yes, you know, David being one of the world-class image editing experts out there would be a perfect person to look at this because he's analyzed a lot of photos. He's found a few that seem to pass muster and a lot of stuff where he has problems. And certainly at this point, if you want to have a good follow-up, David is your man. I'm going to go on a limb here and say I'm much more capable than Mr. Dilatoso. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I am too, but that says nothing. No, 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 Mike. I, I understand this. This is this is the, the this is the nature of the paranormal field in general. You, you have a, a person like you that comes in with a very credible sighting with some good information, and what happens is that you have the vampires, and the vampires glom on and sink the fangs in. And like parasites, they just they start to suck the blood because these people need they need sustenance. They need something to go on. They need credibility. They don't have any credibility themselves, so they look for other people's credibility. And this is something that you know Gene can can back me up on this. I mean, I, I've gotten very frustrated over this because of the fact that on the Paracast, besides the fact that we've gotten into some real uh, uh, tugs of war with certain people and some real personality battles, which I'm not necessarily proud of, but Gene and I are both native New Yorkers, and we never back down from a good fight. That's just who we are. Right, Gene? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you want to fight with us, you're going to get as much as you yeah, can. Yeah, we'll, we'll go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, sure. Yankees or Mets? That's right. Oh, I don't know. That's the little white ball on the stick. 
Is that what that is? That's the that's not the little white ball in the metal stick where the guys are rolling around in carts. That's like the okay. That's so you weren't upset the Yankees lost last night, then? I don't even know what the Yankees and the Mets are. That's baseball, right? I, I like that movie Field of Dreams. That's good. That had that Kevin Costner guy. Okay. Yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah, I, I couldn't give a damn about organized sports. To me, that's like organized. Okay. It's it's off my radar. I sent this uh, UFO simulation that Tom King did of of my sighting. I sent this to David. And I sent this Thursday, and I can resend this, or I can forward. Oh, yeah, no, I definitely didn't get it. I didn't get it. No. Okay. Oh, that's frustrating. Feel right. free to do it anyway. We're about out of time, but I wanted to basically ask you: as you continue research, if anybody out there needs to contact you, maybe they have a sighting back in 1997 or later on that could contribute to your investigation. How do they contact you? Uh, email address sure. or a phone call. Send me an email, phone call. Okay. Um, type in Mike Forson in Google. It'll take you right to me. Okay. So if they just do Google, that's fine. And we'll also link to your articles online on our site, theparacast.com. So on the uh, Knowledge is Power on uh, Frank Warren's uh, site, there's a ways to get a hold of me on there, too. I'm, I'm there. Okay, we're going to link to that directly, ladies and gentlemen. So just click on that, and you'll find out how to get a hold of Mike. And if you have any further information, let him know. Let us know, because as we continue to try to figure out what's going on here, what happened in the Phoenix Lights, trying to separate the posturing and the ego boosts and the attempts to sell books and trying to find out what really went on, we're going to continue to look at this. Mike Fortson, so from here we have the hope you might do that book or what? <laughs> I doubt seriously if that'll happen. I don't think I'll write it. I really don't. You know, I might get motivated maybe in my older age or something, you know, but right now it's been 10 years after the fact. I'm just amazed. I just won't leave it there. I just, I don't, I don't have that ability. Maybe if I'd have been a better student, you know, I was a, I was a, in school in the 60s and the 70s, and who knew when you were trying to get out of English class or typing class, you know, that we would have the Internet and, and something like this would happen, you know, who knew? No, I, I think you're doing the right thing. I'm guessing you're making a much better living as a real estate guy than we're making being uh, a UFO head. So uh, I think... Yes, sir, I that, agree with that. In that sense, you're probably way smarter than Gene or myself. <laughs> and on that note, Mike Fortson, thank you for joining us on the Paracast. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. We really appreciate it. And a reminder, next week on the Paracast, we'll look into UFOs in Latin America with Scott Carellis. Scott Carellis coming up next week on the Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.